This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover inside the house there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of the crimes depicted, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, abuse, and violence that some people may find disturbing. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. It was the summer of 1965. In Vietnam, a bloody war was escalating. On the Gemini 4 space capsule, astronauts celebrated their first spacewalk. Closer to home, everybody was listening to the Beatles. The miniskirt was all the rage. In Indiana, some residents were still rebuilding after that April's Palm Sunday tornadoes tore through the state and killed more than 250 people. There were county fairs to attend and church socials to prepare for. And two teenage girls, Sylvia and Jenny Likens, were being sent to stay with their friends, the Banaszewskis. It was just for a few months while their parents worked the carnival circuit and made a little money. But those few months turned into a nightmare of abuse, torture, and murder that left one girl dead and a community shocked. By the end of the summer, Indianapolis was reeling from what has been called the most terrible crime ever committed in the state of Indiana. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every week, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals on the Parcast Network. This week, we'll be discussing the murder of 16-year-old Sylvia Likens by Gertrude Banaszewski, which took place in Indiana in 1965. If you want to listen to any previous episodes, you can find them and all of ParCast's shows on your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Many of you have asked how you can help the show. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to help is to leave us a five-star review. In July 1965, 16-year-old Sylvia Likens and her 15-year-old sister Jenny were taken in by single mother Gertrude Banaszewski. 
By October, Sylvia was dead. Sylvia endured months of abuse, torture, and mutilation before she was killed. Gertrude instigated much of the abuse, but what makes this crime more incomprehensible is that several of the Banashevsky children, as well as friends and neighborhood children, had tortured and hurt Sylvia as well. On many occasions, neighbors heard screams coming from the house, but didn't want to pry. Several people learned about the escalating abuse, but they didn't know how bad it was, or thought it wasn't their business to ask. Sylvia and Jenny even had opportunities to get help or escape, but they never went through with it. In this episode, we'll talk about Gertrude Banaszewski and Sylvia Likens, their pasts and their circumstances, and the first few months of Sylvia's stay at the Banaszewski home. We'll sift through what might have motivated Gertrude's behavior and why Sylvia didn't simply get help or run away. In part two, we'll piece together what happened to Sylvia during the last few weeks of her life. Then we'll cover the trial of the six defendants sentenced for murder and manslaughter, including Gertrude, two of her children, and three other neighbors. Gertrude Banaszewski was born Gertrude Nadine Van Fossen in 1929. Little is known about her childhood, though she was said to have a close bond with her father, but a distant relationship with her mother. When she was 11, Gertrude witnessed the sudden death of her father when he suffered a heart attack. Before Vanessa talks about Gertrude's psychology, as she will throughout this episode, first a brief disclaimer. Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for the show. Multiple studies have shown associations between childhood trauma and later psychological distress, psychiatric disorders, and depression. A traumatic experience is, according to the American Psychiatric Association, one that threatens death or injury to self or others and elicits intense feelings of fear, helplessness, or horror. Examples of traumatic events include physical or sexual abuse, combat, witnessing violence or disaster, or the sudden death of a loved one. Gertrude's witnessing her father's death at such a young age might have influenced her later psychological issues. When Gertrude was 16, she dropped out of high school to marry 18-year-old police deputy John Banaszewski. In the following years, John worked as a police officer and Gertrude clerked in drugstores and dime stores. Gertrude and John had four children during this time. Paula, Stephanie, Johnny, and Marie. John Sr. had a violent temper and would often beat Gertrude if he felt she was annoying him. After the birth of her second daughter, Stephanie, in 1950, Gertrude had what was at the time called a nervous breakdown. She was admitted to a hospital for two weeks, mostly because she wasn't eating enough and had become dehydrated. According to psychiatrist Dr. Gail Saltz, the term nervous breakdown was used decades ago to describe symptoms like depression, anxiety, and even psychosis that seriously impair function. In the 1950s, women with postpartum depression were often given the diagnosis of nervous breakdown. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, postpartum depression is a mood disorder that affects 15% of women after childbirth when levels of the hormones estrogen and progesterone quickly drop. This leads to chemical changes in the brain, causing symptoms like mood swings, feeling sad, empty or overwhelmed, eating too little, and experiencing anger or rage. 
A woman is more at risk if she has a lack of strong emotional support from her partner or family. This appeared to have been the case for Gertrude. After 10 years of marriage in 1955, Gertrude and John divorced. Gertrude was granted custody of the children. Within a year, she married another man named Edward Guthrie. This marriage was short-lived, lasting only six months. Guthrie divorced Gertrude when he tired of having her children around. Shortly thereafter, Gertrude and John Banaszewski started living together again, but never formally remarried. We don't know why Gertrude and John reconnected, but Gertrude, as a single mother with four children to take care of and no job skills, likely needed to rely on a partner as her only means of survival. The couple stayed together for another four years and had two more children, Shirley and Jimmy. But around 1961, Gertrude finally left John and what she later described as a very unhappy situation for good, taking the children with her. Sometime when she was in her mid-30s, Gertrude began seeing a man named Dennis Lee Wright, who was only in his 20s. He was also abusive to Gertrude. The couple had one child, Dennis Jr., in 1964. Early in 1965, Gertrude found out she was pregnant again. But in April, she had a miscarriage. This was the sixth miscarriage Gertrude had suffered. Shortly afterwards, Wright abandoned Gertrude and her now seven children. Gertrude tried to keep up a semblance of respectability by calling herself Mrs. Wright and claiming she and Dennis had married, but she had no money except for sporadic child support payments from her first husband. Gertrude's oldest daughter, Paula, had helped around the house and sometimes brought in a little pay when she could find a job. But in April, shortly after her mother's miscarriage, 17-year-old Paula ran away to Kentucky with a married man, There was no saying if or when she'd be back. Gertrude began taking in ironing and doing babysitting for neighbors to support herself and the children. But this was far from enough. Between the ironing, babysitting, and other odd jobs, Gertrude was working 16 hours a day. Around this time, Gertrude's appearance changed considerably. She ate almost nothing and claimed she was sick with several unidentified illnesses. She also had chronic asthmatic bronchitis, for which she took prescription medicine. She became neglectful of her personal hygiene. Soon, she was losing her hair, had sunken eyes, and was growing painfully thin. At five foot six, Gertrude weighed barely 100 pounds. According to the American Psychological Association, a woman who has had a miscarriage is at increased risk for depression and anxiety, and Gertrude was dealing with much more than one miscarriage. She'd had seven children and six miscarriages in 20 years. She'd been abused in at least two of her three partner relationships. She was poor, a single mother, and in ill health. She said she felt like she was having another nervous breakdown. During her trial in 1966, Gertrude underwent tests by three court-appointed psychiatrists and was diagnosed as having nervousness or being neurotic. What was called nervousness back then is often known by a different term today, borderline personality disorder. Borderline personality disorder affects at least one to 2% of the general population and 70% of the people affected are women. The causes of the disorder are only partly known, but one possible cause could be genetics. 
Another cause is thought to be adverse events during childhood, such as physical or sexual abuse. We don't know if Gertrude was abused as a young child, but we do know that she didn't have a good relationship with her mother. And Gertrude's first marriage occurred at an early age, just 16, with a husband who was abusive. Major depression, eating disorders, and chronic feelings of emptiness and anxiety are common in those with borderline personalities. Gertrude exhibited all of these symptoms. By the beginning of July 1965, Gertrude's 17-year-old daughter Paula came back home. She'd been rejected by the married man she'd pursued in Kentucky, and she was two months pregnant. It was at this time that Paula was introduced to Sylvia and Jenny Likens, who had just recently moved to town. Jenny was somewhat shy, possibly because she wore a leg brace as a result of a childhood bout with polio. Sylvia, in contrast, was outgoing. Everyone who knew her seemed to like her. She was slender with curly hair that hung below her shoulders. She always kept her mouth closed when she smiled as she'd lost a front tooth in a tussle with one of her brothers when she was seven. Sylvia once told a neighbor she felt like the odd one in her family because she was born between two sets of twins. Danny and Diana were two years older, Jenny and Benny a year younger. Sylvia and Jenny's family came from Boone County, northwest of Indianapolis. Their father, Lester Likens, had worked several jobs through the years, including driving a laundry route, working in factories, and owning a small restaurant. He'd also traveled with carnivals selling concessions. The Likens family had recently lived for three months in Long Beach, California. The children liked the West Coast, but their parents were homesick. In early 1965, they returned to Lebanon, Indiana, where Sylvia had been born. In June 1965, Betty Likens left her husband, taking Sylvia and Jenny with her to Indianapolis. A few weeks later, on July 3rd, Betty was arrested for shoplifting and sent to county jail. Sylvia, 16, was left to take care of her sister. It was at this time that Paula Banaszewski met Sylvia and Jenny through a mutual friend. Seeing that the sisters were adrift without their mother, she invited them over to her home. The Banaszewskis lived in a big house at 3850 East New York Street. The girls drank soda and listened to records on the phonograph. The Likens girls seemed to get along well with everyone, including Paula's mother, Gertrude. The two oldest Banaszewski girls, Paula and Stephanie, were 17 and 15, around the same ages as Sylvia and Jenny. As for the rest of the Banaszewskis, Johnny, Marie, Shirley, and Jimmy were 12, 11, 10, and 8, respectively. Dennis Jr. was still an infant. Lester Likens and his son Danny soon tracked down Sylvia and Jenny at the Banaszewski house. The sisters told them the news that Betty was in county lockup, but when Lester and Danny went to the jail, they found out Betty had already been discharged and gone to her parents' house in another part of Indianapolis. The two men returned to Gertrude's house. Lester had been drinking a bit and wasn't up to doing any more that day. Gertrude invited Lester and his son to spend the night with her family. That evening, Lester told Gertrude of his plans to go back on the Kearney circuit, selling concessions at county and state fairs. But there were the children to consider. Diana, the eldest Likens daughter, was married now and had a family of her own. Danny and Benny could be sent to stay with their grandmother, 
But Lester's mother wouldn't be able to handle taking care of four grandchildren, so they still had to find a place for Sylvia and Jenny to go. Gertrude saw a money-making opportunity and seized it. She suggested boarding Sylvia and Jenny at her house for just $20 a week. in 1965 would be worth over $150 today. The next day, Lester Likens met up with his wife, Betty. The couple reconciled, and Betty agreed to join Lester on the carnival circuit. They decided to let the girls stay with Gertrude. Lester paid Gertrude $20 up front, and the deal was set. Today, we might wonder about parents giving their children to strangers for months, But Lester and Betty would have figured it was a good way to see that their youngest daughters had a roof over their heads while they were away. It was also a different era with different ideas about parenting. Children were less closely supervised and they were raised to obey their elders without question, whether it be parents, teachers, or guardians. In fact, Lester told Gertrude to use a firm hand with the girls. It would be a remark that would come back to haunt the Likens family just a few months later. Coming up, we'll explore the first months of Sylvia and Jenny's stay at the Banashevsky house as their summer fun descended into a living nightmare. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cashback rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cashback on top of Big Give Week's 15% cashback. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. We wanted to remind our listeners that listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of graphic murder, abuse, and violence against children. Now, back to female criminals. In July 1965, teens Sylvia and Jenny Likens went to stay with Indianapolis single mother Gertrude Banishevsky while their parents were off working. It was supposed to be only for a few months. Even though she dropped out of school the previous year, 17-year-old Sylvia was looking forward to attending Arsenal Technical High School in the fall. In the meantime, she and Jenny settled into their new temporary home, attending church and Sunday school with Gertrude and the kids, listening to records, or going to one of three parks in the neighborhood. Sylvia also gladly pitched in and helped with the housework. Gertrude struggled to pay the $55 a month in rent, about $435 today, while also keeping food on the table for herself and nine children. 
ironing and babysitting work wasn't steady, and her ex-husband's child support payments didn't always come. Meals were often scant, consisting of a breakfast of toast, nothing for lunch, and then soup for dinner. Hunger was an ongoing issue for all the kids, and arguments broke out if one person seemed to be getting more than the others. Gertrude also had to pay for her medication. She'd been seeing the same doctor for several years for her chronic asthmatic bronchitis. Her chain smoking most likely exacerbated the condition. She was on ephedrine, a stimulant to help keep her airways open, and phenobarbital, a sedative for anxiety and nervousness brought on by the ephedrine. Gertrude also took coracidin, a cough medicine, as well as an antihistamine. She often complained of feeling drowsy, and that is a side effect of these two drugs, as well as phenobarbital. Other potential side effects of phenobarbital are dizziness, confusion, problems with memory, excitation, and aggression. Gertrude would also often complain of frayed nerves, and the noisy household of nine kids didn't help. At times, she would scream at the kids to get out of the house. Other times, she didn't have the energy to yell and would sleep through the day while the kids went out to play. The first days of Sylvia's and Jenny's stay seemed to go well, but by the end of the week, when Gertrude didn't receive her $20 payment from Lester, she flew into a rage. Gertrude had two instruments she used for corporal punishment, a fraternity-style paddle and a leather belt left behind by her ex-husband, John. Gertrude slapped the girls, told them to lean over chairs, then spanked them with the paddle. Even though the girls had no control over when their father sent the money, in Gertrude's mind, they were to be punished. According to a review by Dr. Joan Durant and Ron Ensom, as recently as 20 years ago, corporal punishment of children was generally accepted and considered an appropriate method of discipline. However, studies finding links between corporal punishment and child aggression, delinquency, and spousal assault later in life have caused a change in perspective in recent times. Virtually every study done on the effects of corporal punishment found it was associated with higher levels of aggression against parents, siblings, peers, and spouses. But Gertrude had likely been raised with this form of punishment and probably used it on her own children as well. It's very possible Sylvia and Jenny had been punished by their parents in a similar manner too. Either way, the girls seemed to accept it as inevitable. The next day, the money order arrived from Lester. A few days later, Lester and Betty stopped by and visited their daughters, and Lester gave Gertrude another $20 in advance. Neither Sylvia nor Jenny mentioned the punishment of a few days before. In fact, the girls' parents came to visit on several weekends if they were home between fairs, staying for maybe an hour at most. They didn't ever get the sense from Sylvia or Jenny that anything was wrong. As spanking or hitting was considered the correct way to discipline children, especially in poor, strict, working-class families, Sylvia and Jenny likely didn't think to talk about it. They knew that the adults wouldn't find anything wrong with it. They would say they deserved it for misbehaving. In the third week of July, Gertrude found out Sylvia and Jenny had made some extra pennies by cashing in soda bottles. Their father had suggested the idea, and the girls had scoured the parks looking for bottles. 
But Gertrude became convinced Sylvia was getting the Banaszewski children to loiter around grocery stores and steal the bottles. Gertrude might have also been angry that the girls had made money without her knowledge. Either way, both Sylvia and Jenny again got the paddle. It was likely around this time that getting hit or paddled by Gertrude became a regular occurrence for any indiscretion, real or imagined. And Gertrude started to single out Sylvia to take out most of her aggression on. At the time, the theory was that Gertrude was jealous of Sylvia, of her youth, or how pretty she was. Gertrude was known to blame Sylvia for everything wrong in her life, including her asthma and nervous anxiety. Individuals with borderline personality disorder show great instability in impulse control and interpersonal relationships. They're also prone to emotional dysregulation, also known as mood swings, and frequent displays of intense anger that they have difficulty controlling. Gertrude seemed to get angry more and more often when she thought Sylvia had transgressed, and the punishments increased accordingly. And when Gertrude was too weak or tired from her ailments, she would have her oldest daughter, Paula, perform the punishments. By all accounts, Paula seemed happy to oblige. By August, Paula had become her mother's second in command, so to speak. Not only did Paula help around the house, she also helped in disciplining Sylvia and Jenny. While it's not known exactly what made Paula turn against the Likens girls, it could have been that being by this time three months pregnant and fearing her mother's wrath, Paula desperately wanted to stay on Gertrude's good side. Gertrude knew about Paula's pregnancy, but denied it to anyone who asked. In her mind, her eldest was a good girl, and Paula seemed to work hard to stay in her mother's good graces. Around August 1st, Gertrude told Paula that Sylvia had insulted her. In defense of her mother, Paula punched Sylvia in the jaw. Her hand connected so hard, Paula broke her wrist. For weeks after, whenever Paula was asked about the cast on her wrist, she bragged about what happened. It was common knowledge in the neighborhood. Paula even told one woman at church that she'd tried to kill Sylvia. For the next six weeks, Paula used the cast as another weapon against Sylvia. Several times, Paula hit Sylvia across the mouth with it, making her bleed. Lester and Betty visited Sylvia and Jenny a few weeks after their arrival at the Banashevskys around the middle of August. The girls didn't mention any mistreatment, but they did say they were hungry, so their parents took them out to a drive-in for a meal. We have to wonder, when the girls were alone with their parents and out of the Banashevsky house, why they didn't ask to leave? We don't know what conversations took place between Sylvia and Jenny and their parents, the girls very well could have complained of punishment and been told to just behave themselves and do what Gertrude told them. Or even at this early stage, they could have been afraid of Gertrude and what the woman might do if she found out. And so they said nothing. With little known about what was going on in Sylvia's mind, we can only theorize why she didn't tell someone or just run away instead of taking Gertrude's punishments. By all accounts, Sylvia was an outgoing person, not meek. Maybe at first Sylvia felt she could hold her own. She and her siblings already had a hard-knock life. Maybe conditions at the Banashevsky house seemed manageable. Stephanie and Shirley were nice, at least at first. The punishments weren't constant. There were reprieves. 
Of course, Sylvia couldn't have imagined how bad things could get. In cases of domestic violence, the abuser often administers the abuse gradually over time, conditioning the victim to the situation. Lenore Walker, in her 1979 book, The Battered Woman, explained what she termed the cycle of violence as having four parts. The first part is tension building, where stress builds and the victim is fearful of being abused. The second part is the incident, when the abuse occurs. This can be verbal, emotional, or physical abuse. The third part is reconciliation, when the abuser apologizes, gives excuses, blames the victim, negates how bad the abuse was, or even denies the abuse occurred at all. The fourth part of the cycle of violence is called the calm. This is a period when no abuse takes place and the abuser creates an atmosphere of normalcy. The cycle repeats many times over the course of an abusive relationship until the victim is so worn down and confused they don't know what else to do but stay. As the cycle continues repeating, the reconciliation and calm stages may disappear, and the violence may become more intense. By the third week of August, Gertrude's food supply began to get low, as she waited for her ex-husband's child support check to arrive. On Sunday, however, the family attended a church supper and had the opportunity to get a full meal. But when everyone got home, Paula told her mother that Sylvia and Jenny had eaten too much at the supper. For this, Sylvia and Jenny got paddled. At this point, while the rest of the family was often hungry, Sylvia was set up to be the scapegoat for being a glutton. It seemed to be just another reason to punish her. Not long after, the kids complained that Sylvia had eaten a hot dog. Maybe it was supposed to be a joke, or maybe it was Gertrude's way of controlling her kids. But at her urging, the others gave Sylvia another hot dog, but loaded it with so many spices and condiments that it made Sylvia throw up. In another incident, Gertrude told Sylvia she smelled a hamburger on her breath and saw mustard on her mouth. Even though no one else saw evidence of this and Sylvia swore she hadn't eaten, Gertrude punched Sylvia in the eye. By the end of August, what Gertrude called her nervous condition was getting worse. She was often too exhausted to work, and she was increasingly self-medicating because of her bronchitis. Money issues were a huge concern. Gertrude had not paid the paperboy, and when she racked up quite a bill, she was served with a warrant. She ignored it, and on August 27th, the police came to arrest her. She became belligerent and was charged on two counts, defrauding a newsboy and resisting arrest. Gertrude paid the fines, but this just added to her financial and emotional burdens. The Banaszewski kids always had friends and neighbors dropping by, but Ricky Hobbs, 14, who lived just a few doors down, didn't seem to be a friend of the Banaszewski kids. He would come by to visit Gertrude. They would often smoke cigarettes and listen to records together. On at least one occasion, Gertrude danced provocatively for Ricky. Even though they later denied it, it was almost certain the two developed a sexual relationship. One of the traits of borderline personality disorder is emotional immaturity, and Gertrude's attraction to teenage boys possibly stemmed from this. She often bragged about still being able to attract younger men, even at age 37. 
In a study cited in the publication Sexual Abuse, a Journal of Research and Treatment, it was found that the most common female sexual offenders are what are called nurturers, or the teacher-lover group. These are women who see the relationship as based on love and may not recognize its inappropriate nature. They're driven by a need for intimacy and are trying to compensate for emotional needs not met anywhere else in their lives. They find adolescent boys less threatening than men their own age, and they have more control over their relationship. Gertrude had been controlled by the men in her past relationships to a violent degree, and this could have been her way of trying to meet her emotional needs without being abused in the process. In studies done by Dr. Ruth Matthews and others, adult female sexual predators have many psychological traits and symptoms in common, including emotional dependence, emotional immaturity, social isolation, and low self-esteem. Other common traits are substance abuse, a history of physical and or emotional abuse, and being the victim of domestic violence. Many of these traits are also shared by those with borderline personality disorder. In late August, Gertrude asked Sylvia, possibly as a way to tease or taunt her, if she'd had any romantic experience with boys. Sylvia admitted she'd crawled under the covers with a boyfriend in California. From then on, Gertrude would often tell people that Sylvia was pregnant because of this encounter. At first, Sylvia thought she was kidding, as the encounter had happened months earlier in the spring. If she was pregnant, she'd be showing by now. But Gertrude was adamant, even in the face of her daughter Paula's pregnancy, that it was actually Sylvia who was pregnant. And Paula, maybe in denial of her own pregnancy and wanting to please her mother, went along with it. Many times, she threw Sylvia to the kitchen floor and told her that because she'd gotten herself knocked up, she wasn't fit to sit in a chair. At the beginning of September, Sylvia and Jenny started attending school with the Beneshevsky children. Even though Sylvia didn't like school all that much, it meant getting at least one hot meal a day at lunch. By this time, Sylvia was closest to Stephanie, Gertrude's 15-year-old daughter. Sylvia was also friends with Stephanie's boyfriend, Coy Hubbard, who was also 15. At six feet tall and 170 pounds, Coy was considered a troublemaker, who often talked back to his teachers. Perhaps because she had gotten so much grief from Gertrude about her supposed sexual promiscuity, at school, Sylvia allegedly began spreading similar rumors about both Paula and Stephanie. She told fellow students that Paula and Stephanie put out. Soon the rumors were circulating. We don't know why Sylvia included Stephanie in her hurtful gossip, but we do know that when Coy Hubbard heard what Sylvia had said about his girlfriend, he went to the house to confront her. Even though Sylvia apologized, Coy slapped her and banged her head against the wall. Then he flipped Sylvia over, judo style, onto the floor. Sylvia, the Banashevskys, and their friends had practiced judo flips on each other earlier in the summer, using a mattress as a landing mat. It was all in good fun until now. Coy was the first of the neighborhood kids to join the Banashevskys in tormenting Sylvia Likens, but he wouldn't be the last. Up next, we'll explore how things spiraled out of control during the last fateful weeks of Sylvia's life. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Now back to the story. Even though both Sylvia and Jenny Likens were being subjected to punishment at the Banashevsky house, by September 1965, Sylvia had been singled out to receive the bulk of the abuse, not only from Gertrude, but from her kids as well. More trouble was in store when Sylvia needed a uniform for her gym class at school. Gertrude refused to buy her one, even though Sylvia was not allowed in gym class without one. The next day, Sylvia had a uniform with her, claiming she'd found it on the sidewalk. But when Gertrude pushed for a confession, Sylvia admitted to stealing it. Stephanie Banashevsky's boyfriend, Coy Hubbard, happened to come over while Sylvia was being chastised, and Gertrude recruited his help in punishing her. Gertrude held lit matches to Sylvia's fingers while Coy held Sylvia down. Sylvia's attendance in school started to drop throughout September. Gertrude received repeated notices inquiring about Sylvia's absences. She answered some of the notices and even visited the school to talk to Sylvia's teachers. The teachers were impressed with Gertrude's apparent concern. She told them Sylvia just didn't want to go to school. But in reality, Gertrude was forbidding Sylvia to go, claiming it was punishment because Sylvia had stolen the gym uniform. By this time, Gertrude had turned many of her children and her children's friends against Sylvia through lies and manipulation, and Sylvia rarely defended herself. Jenny Likens suffered regular beatings as well, but she seemed to avoid the worst of it. This was possibly because of the brace on her leg, or because she was as compliant as she could manage to be in order to avoid punishment. At one point in September, Gertrude told Stephanie's friend Anna Sisko, 13, that Sylvia was spreading rumors about Anna's mother. Anna attacked Sylvia in retaliation, kicking and slapping her, some of their other friends went to break things up, but Gertrude stopped them, telling them to let the two fight their own fight. Sylvia didn't really fight back, though, even when Anna kicked her in the stomach. This turned into a pattern. Gertrude would spread a rumor that Sylvia had insulted one of the other kids, and they would retaliate. Paula, Stephanie, and their friend Judy Duke, 12, all believed the lies Gertrude told them and took their anger out on Sylvia. Hitting Sylvia in the head or throwing things at her, like dishes, bottles, or hairspray cans, became a game, almost routine. Gertrude and Paula led the charge. Gertrude would punch Sylvia repeatedly, but the girl didn't dare fight back. The abuse escalated by the end of September. As many as 10 children at a time would gang up, beating, kicking, or flipping Sylvia. Johnny Banashevsky and his friend Randy Lepper, 12, would take turns punching her in the face. 
Sometimes Sylvia would have lit matches flicked at her. All of these activities were considered by the kids to be games. Sylvia might have thought so too. At the trial, the attorneys and the press attributed the children's behavior to mob psychology. Mob or crowd psychology is a branch of social psychology where several theories have been developed to explain how the behavior of crowds differs from that of individuals. Crowds can be passive, like audiences, or active, like mobs. One type of active mob is the aggressive mob, which is often violent and outwardly focused. A theory held by French psychologist Gustave Le Bon suggests that crowds exist in stages. Two of these stages are submergence and contagion. During submergence, people in the crowd lose their sense of individual self and personal responsibility. Contagion refers to how individuals in the crowd unquestioningly follow the predominant ideas and emotions of the crowd. Mob psychology could explain how the older Banashevsky children, Paula, Johnny, and Stephanie, as well as Coy Hubbard, Randy Lepper, Judy Duke, Anna Sisko, and Mike Monroe, who was 11, participated in such casually brutal acts against Sylvia, either on orders from Gertrude or on their own. According to John Dean, a reporter who covered the 1966 trial and subsequently wrote the book House of Evil, the Indiana Torture Slaying, Gertrude was a, quote, psychologically passive woman among her peers, but she had a way with children, an evil way. For whatever motive, she was able to mobilize children's play energy to serve her own dark purposes with Sylvia Likens, end quote. Gertrude's motives as part of her borderline personality disorder seemed mundane and understandable, and at the same time, quite complex. Being still fairly young, only in her mid-30s, and suffering from low self-esteem and emotional immaturity, Gertrude possibly felt less like a parental figure and more like one of the gang of teenagers, so to speak, but still the leader of that gang. Gertrude likely didn't feel she had much control over what happened in her life, but she could control what happened in her household. She couldn't control the adults who abused her, but she could control impressionable young people who didn't know any better. It would give her power in an existence in which she felt powerless. On October 5th, Lester and Betty Likens visited their daughters at Gertrude's for the last time. They brought another $20 for Gertrude and gave Sylvia and Jenny school clothes. They were pleased that Sylvia, who had quit school the year before, was now going back to high school. No one told them Sylvia wasn't really going much anymore. The girls said they were hungry, so their parents took them out for a Coke. The month of September had been particularly bad for Sylvia. She'd endured beatings and abuse from Gertrude, her children, and their friends. Jenny had been abused as well. Would Lester and Betty have noticed that Sylvia was thinner, possibly with bruises on her face or arms? If so, they didn't say anything. It was likely at this meal that their parents told the girls they were traveling with the carnival to Florida and wouldn't be back for another three weeks. It's heartbreaking to think that had Sylvia and Jenny spoken up about their abuse here and now, the horrific events that were to take place in the next few weeks might have been averted. They might have believed that there was no way out of the abuse, even if they spoke up. In the 1960s and 70s, 
psychologists Martin Seligman and Stephen Meyer started conducting experiments in what is called learned helplessness. Learned helplessness is a phenomenon observed in humans and animals that have been conditioned to expect pain, suffering, or discomfort without a way to escape it. When they believe they have no control over what happens to them, they begin to feel as if they're helpless. Eventually, after enough conditioning, they'll stop trying to avoid the pain at all, even if there's an opportunity to escape it. Seligman and Meyer conducted experiments on dogs and rats using electric shocks. The animals who were given shocks but learned there was no way to stop them eventually just gave up, even when they were later presented with the opportunity to avoid the pain. In a later experiment, human participants were subjected to a loud and unpleasant noise. Those who had learned they could neither stop the loud noise nor escape it eventually didn't attempt to turn it off, even when given the chance. Seligman and his colleagues found that putting their subjects through negative situations that were out of their control caused a depressed state. Based on this research, an important connection was made between learned helplessness and depression. One finding was that those who have felt helpless over a long period of time are more likely to suffer from depression. Learned helplessness has also been observed in victims of domestic violence. These victims are often asked why they stayed with their abuser, why they didn't tell someone, get help, or just leave. After all, it makes no logical sense that a victim would choose to stay with someone who is hurting them when there are ways to escape the pain. But in these cases, the abuser maintains complete control, and the victim learns they're helpless to do anything about their circumstances. Given these findings, it's understandable that Sylvia's gradual conditioning to Gertrude's abuse led to depression and learned helplessness. Sylvia felt there was no one she could turn to, and so she lacked the will or motivation to escape. At any rate, if Lester and Betty Likens noticed anything unusual about their daughter's behavior on October 5th, they didn't seem to think it serious enough to cancel the next leg of their trip with the carnival. Lester gave Sylvia money for new school shoes, and the girls were dropped back off at Gertrude's. Sylvia and Jenny's parents would learn later that Sylvia's last day of school was the very next day, October 6th. Less than three weeks later, Sylvia was dead. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. In next week's episode, we'll discuss what happened to Sylvia Likens leading up to her death. Then we'll cover the trial of Gertrude Banaszewski, her children, and the others who were sentenced for Sylvia's murder. You can find more Female Criminals and all of ParCast podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked how to help the show. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Kristen Kirby and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson.